Hey, this is Brent Johnson, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, handcrafting otherworldly guitar pickups down in Detroit. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury show on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music. All right, welcome back to part two of my chat with legendary frontman, Mr. Rick Emmett. Without any further ado, let's get right into it. Here we go. Okay, so uh, the next segment we're going to talk about is There's Politics in Everything. And there is a poem in this segment called Hands Up, Hands Down that provides some very grim observations of the state of our democracy, sir. (laughs) Well, when I was writing this, I mean, obviously it was COVID times, but also Trump was the president of the United States and... Oh, that rubbed me the wrong way. It's, yeah. is, can you have more than one wrong way? I was rubbed <laughs> in so many wrong ways. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of fuel for my fire. You know, once you find a metaphor, the whole idea of hands up. And I mean, there, there's an old uh, story of uh, John Lennon being unhappy with Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the two singles at the time, like there was a, a competition between them. Who gets to have the the single? You know, who's the A side? Oh, okay. So, and this uh, existed for a long time, but it was G- G- McCartney had written um, "Hello Goodbye," yeah, and uh, Lennon had written "Baby You're a Rich Man." Mm. So, you know, Lennon wanted his song to be the A side, and it was you no know, "Hello Goodbye" was going to be and. Lennon was doing interviews and was disparaging McCartney's thing as, oh, it's just this insipid tune that's full of opposites. You know, you say yes, I say no. You say goodbye, I say hello. You know, Lennon just thought it was a piece of crap. But there is this thing in in writing, poetry writing, lyric writing, where, you know, if you say one thing, if you say hands up, then the obvious next thing you might say is hands down, you know. And I find that a fairly effective, good way to start establishing polar territories. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands up. Who's a, who's in agreement with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh oh. Hands down. You know, like because of course the the there's expressions. You know, I'm I'm totally into that. Hands down. You know. Yes. Yeah. Hands down. It ends with. Well, let me just read a little bit. Yeah. Hands up, those who instinctively seek to shield their faces from the constant onslaught. Hands up, those who surrender. It ends with this final line. It's got us defeated. Hands down. Yeah, well, obviously when I'm writing and sketching these things, there's ideas that I get, and then, you know, you're writing well on the page and you're going to... That that could make a good ending, you know. Yeah. So he's got to circle it and put an arrow towards the bottom of the page, <laughs> and then you're coming up with other ideas and filling them in and stuff. But I was also governed by the fact that I really was trying to make it so that I would write poems that would fit. I was I had obviously was reading a lot of poetry, yeah, and it sort of irritated me when I had to flip the page. And a lot of times you got to flip the page to get to the last five or six lines, mm. you know. And I'm thinking, damn, no, I want to get them to fit on one page. They got to fit on one page. <laughs> but, you know, part of it too is, you know, 
what size book is your publisher going to dis- you know because poetry books they don't want them to get too big yeah. and they don't want them to get too thick mm-hmm. you know so it's like and then I go, well, will mine come out in hardcover? Am I going to get a hardcover? Like, no, you <laughs> you haven't earned that yet, you know. So it's like, oh, okay. But anyways, I was trying to make them fit on one page. It's it's weird how I can't. Like, mm. I mean, obviously, if somebody gets the book and they're looking at it, they're going to go, no, this one fit on one page, and oh my god, this one's only five lines long. Mm. You know, yes, yeah, sometimes they did, but more often than not. My natural length to say what I want to say is probably going to be eight lines or 10 lines over onto another page. Like, it's just how long it takes for me. Yeah. And it's a weird thing. It's like like in a spiral notebook as I'm writing on the page, I can fit a lot of the crap, you know, <laughs> in and around with arrows and I'm writing on the side and there's marginalia and, you know. But uh, unfortunately, when it gets to the printed version, it's going to go over the page. See, that would be a cool kind of flanker book, a supporting book, that, the actual kind of printouts of your, you know, your handwriting. Well, okay, here, yes, sure. Yeah, lovely. Except most people are not going to be, they're going to look and go, what is this? I can't even make out what this says. Sometimes I can't even make out what I've written. I go, what was I saying here? I don't, is is that an ing? I think at the end, uh, you know. So I often will, at a certain point, before I've been living with it too long, I type them into a computer. Oh, and then I work with them there, and Lord knows how many drafts I go through before I finally go. Okay, I think this is it. Yeah, yeah. Did you keep the written versions? Oh yeah, right like, for you. Do I wear, just, here's a little point to show you. In case your podcast is telecast in Technicolor, <laughs> uh, like when I write, this is what this oh, is. Oh wow! This is what pages look like. That's Those cool. are charts for songs. That's a song chart. Yeah. But there's a poem so there. There's a lot of. There's the song charts again. See, there's one. This is probably the third draft. I'm showing them one called River Runs, which will probably be okay. in my next book of poetry. Oh, but man. that's. Probably a third draft by that stage. Yeah. So now it's starting to shape up. Okay. And now it's legible. But the first, if you went back a few pages, you'd probably find versions of River Runs where you're going, <laughs> ah, what is that? I don't know what that is. Yeah. No. Hey, and good penmanship. Thank you. Yeah. My my parents both had, they were from that generation, right? Cursive. My, my, yeah, my dad was born in 28 my mom was born in 29 and that whole thing of penmanship was big for them through the 30s and stuff growing up in schools and so they were both you know tremendously lovely penmanship i have a soft spot for that i love that it it just that flowing cursive is you know i i I hate the fact that that's something that could be potentially lost well as my dad was getting old and the dementia was starting to happen he got to the point where uh, it would be like he had to sign, a, say, a birthday card. And I'd mm. say, okay, Dad, you know, and I'd go and I'd get the birthday card and I'd bring it to him and I'd put it. And he, he would put the pen down by the paper and then he'd be kind of shaking his head and then he'd be shaking his hand a little and massaging his hand. and then, But just the wiring from his brain to his hand to get, to be able to form the letters. Yeah. And it was so heartbreaking yeah. because he, he had taken such pride in his uh, handwriting and it was so... But here's a, an interesting thing. Mm. This is completely off topic. <laughs> Actually, it's not. Right. I can tie it back in. Uh, because the poem of my grandfather, okay. uh, 11, 11, 11, 12, mm-hmm. uh, he 
had been in the First World War. So at a certain point in time, the uh, uh, Canadian military released all military records and yeah. you could get them and they had them literally digitally transferred. Oh. So all of the cards that were my my grandfather's employee record when he was in the military. So his uh, commanding officers, the things that they had written on these little cards that wow. were like his his embarkation day, oh the day that they did his uh, physical and they had you can see the records of the doctors that wrote on the and they've all wow. got incredible penmanship yeah. because you got to be able to read like this was the official record. Right. This wasn't somebody typing into a computer. This so you could get to see this incredible penmanship of yeah. like some guys in a trench in France in 1917 and his handwriting is stellar. Yeah. It's like beautiful, you know, and you're going, wow, you know? Yeah. So uh, puts us to shame. Isn't that a funny thing? Yeah. Now kids, yeah. they can't even, they can't even write cursive. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, you know, the, that all of that will be potentially lost, Yeah. you know, a couple of generations down the line. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's sad to me. Well, yeah, I'm sort of at a point now where I try not to grieve these things because mm. I don't want to be like, I remember when I would go for guitar lessons when I was a kid yeah. and these old jazz guys that would teach the lessons would go like, oh, Elvis and the Beatles, they ruined everything. They yeah. just ruined it. And you go, well, they didn't They didn't ruin things for us. Yeah, They might've yeah. ruined things for you, for you, but for us. So I, I try to remind myself that sometimes change is so rapid and so wide ranging the scope of it is 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 huge yeah that it feels like oh my god you know this is terrible but i think it's also true that the amount of change we're seeing in this digital universe now is such that handwriting will seem like yeah why would you have bothered why didn't somebody just invent the idea of pushing a button on my phone and i could speak it yeah. And then it would be recorded and I would have that digital recording for all time. Yeah. You know, like that's so much simpler and it's so much better. And it is, yeah. you know, so you realize if these efficiencies are start to find their way to say medical research, mm -hmm. imagine the leaps, the quantum leaps that they will make yeah. because of the way they can communicate, the, the, the way they can associate the, their communications. Yeah. Like it'll be phenomenal. So, I kind of have a part of me where I still try to say, don't don't give up that optimism of the, the, they'll cure malnutrition, they'll cure clean water. These things are only a few heartbeats away in this digital time frame. Yeah, uh, we're going to fix these things. They they will learn how to cure cancer. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I try to hold on to those things. <laughs> it's hard, and you've read my book, so you know that it's hard for me to hold on to, but. I do try to say to myself, come on, you know, the sun is still going to come up tomorrow. Yeah. Like no matter how bad today gets. And so I remind myself, right. Okay. Am I a sundown kind of guy or a sun up kind of guy? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm both. It's in the choosing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So next segment, who I was, who I am. Now this is one of my favorite passages. This here. one changed too, I think. Did it? <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the the, the other ones have been right. Change that one. Uh, uh, because he said it's it's just a little too straightforward. Can you make it a little bit uh -oh. more poetic? Okay. So I went, how about uh, my DNA? And he went, mm. and I went, how about double helix? Mm. And he went, 
I like that. Mm. So it's now called, who I was, who I am is now called double, double helix, helix, which refers to the spiral of DNA, you know? So, I mean, really, they're the same title. It's just one way is what an editor likes better. And yeah. There's like a Brian Vollmer joke in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to, it relates to nothing, but you know, all we've got is time here sitting here. Um, Andy Curran. Do you love know? him. Love guy. He's a great, great guy. guy. He was just on the show. Yeah. And yeah. Andy is, is uh, he's got his finger in 10,000 pies, okay, you know, yeah. yeah, because everybody loves him and he's very talented. He's very smart. Yes. And he's really a, a nice spirit, mm-hmm. right? So uh, he was working the TIFF Festival for Triumph as, as one of our guys, coordinating, road managing-ish kind of guy. But he's also done a record with Alex Liveson recently. Yeah. And so he's telling me a story about a Coney Hatch gig mm-hmm. where, you know, Canadian promoter, they book this show and it's going to be, you know, they're look at the, of the past and it's going to be Coney Hatch with, with Helix. Okay. Uh, Helix is supposed to open for Coney Hatch on this gig, wherever it's going to be, you know, blind river or, you know, is who this knows? like recently? Mm, it could have been a couple of years ago. I don't okay. know. It's just Andy was telling me this story recently yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a great story. So, there are maybe two days before the show or something and Andy gets a call and it's the promoter and he goes, Oh, Andy, we've, we've got a problem. And he goes, why? He goes, well, um, Brian Volmer from Helix has said he absolutely refuses to open for Coney Hatch, <laughs> which is like, yeah, you really oh. need that rock star ego. You know, I'm not going to open for Coney Hatch. And so Andy goes, Oh, that's not a problem. He goes, that's no problem. And they go, why? He goes, oh, I don't mind opening for them. That's fine. We'll go on first. He says, because then I can get back to the hotel and I can see Sports Center. (laughs) Which, when you're an old rock, you know, you've been in the rock business for a long time. To me, that's a hilarious joke because it's like, that's the way I think. I go, can I get back to the hotel in order to see the Sports Center? Times have changed. Wow. No, that's good because then I can get to bed early. <laughs> a little oval teen. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty funny. good story, eh? It is. Yeah. Incidentally, okay. uh, just very quickly, Curran was doing my show and in the middle of it, he said, Oh, Brad, I'm so sorry. I uh, misscheduled this thing. I was supposed to call Rick and the guys in Triumph at four thirty. Do you mind if I drop off and then I'll call you back and we can pick up where we where we left off? And I said, Yeah, sure. I edited that whole part out of the show. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he left me to call you. And then he came back and Andy had been a big part of uh, putting together the uh Triumph Allied Forces box set that mm-hmm. Round Hill put out. That's what you were talking kinda, about. That. Yeah, he sort of I don't know, curated that in a way. Then he he helped road manage the TIFF thing that we did at Ontario Place. And yeah. he's I mean, he'd been sort of the man Friday at Anthem Records for a long time. You yes. know, Ray Daniels sort of yeah. second in command kind of thing. And so, yeah. 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 Oh, it was a great guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Go Leafs go in It's No Longer Who I Was Who I Am. <laughs> Double Helix. <laughs> yeah. Double Helix. Yeah. So Go Leafs go. So this, is, um, this poem is excellent storytelling around your experiences with the North End Blues section of the Maple Leaf Gardens as a young hockey fan. And then as the leader of Triumph. Well, I, it's nice that you say leader, but I was never the leader of Triumph. Gil Moore was always the leader. On every union contract, Gil Moore was the leader of Triumph. Gil Moore was the, was the leader of Triumph? 
Sorry? The leader of Triumph. Yeah, Gil was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the front man. Yeah. I wasn't the leader. <laughs> I always kind of saw you as the leader. I know. I know. A- and I know that that's the perception. Uh, certainly as the band's success occurred, mm-hmm. that was the way it was perceived. Oh, yeah. Rick's the front man. Rick's the guy that's singing songs on the radio. You know. Mm. But inside the dynamic of the band internally, that's never the way it was. Mm. Never. I was always the junior partner. Okay. Always. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it. it's nice of you to say. <laughs> You're the leader in my mind. Yeah. So so what was that like? That whole, you know, you as a kid, you went to the North End Blues and watched a hockey game and, and then you're playing Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, unbelievable. And yeah. you know, it's 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 in the poem, but uh I should say this started a, a friend of mine, Kevin Shea, okay. who uh, used to be working for MCA and stuff. And then he sort of became a guy that worked at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And then he became a writer doing books about hockey and usually tied to the Maple Leafs. He was good friends with um, Stafford Smythe's son, whose first name I can't remember. But they used to be uh, neighbors. Okay. Stafford Smythe's family lived beside my uncle mm. in, in, the, in Etobicoke. Mm. So my cousins knew the Smythe kids, you know, they swim in the same pool and hang out with you. Yeah. Yeah. My uncle had a lot of dough. Yeah. Yeah. He sold, sold cars and had car dealerships and stuff. Hmm. Um, Anyway, where was I? Yes. So Kevin asked me if I would contribute to a book that he was doing that was like reminiscences about the Leafs. Voices, blue and white voices or something, you know. So I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote this thing and sent it and he said, oh, Rick, this is the best thing in a book. This is so great. Thank you. You know. And I, again, it was one of those kinds of things where I just kind of sat down and just let it flow. You know, like I reminisced about my connections to the Toronto Maple Leaf franchise. Yeah. So then when I was doing the poetry book, I thought, ultra talk, you know, blah, 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 blah. This might fit, you know, if I, I, I can rephrase the, you know, the structure of some of the lines, but I didn't have to make many changes at all it was really a, a chunk of prose yeah. it wasn't poetry per se but the nature of it was such that it had a kind of poetic quality Certainly. that it was this thing of reminiscing about stuff that was the legend in your own mind which is to say era of the leafs in the 60s they won three cups in a row mm-hmm. i was a little kid before that and my my grandfather was the guy who had had seats yeah uh and in the north end blues at maple leaf gardens in the old gardens and when it used to be reds at the bottom blues in the middle greens above that and grays that's right north end blues he died he had a heart attack uh right around 1950 Six fifty-seven, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. and he died. So my grandmother was uh, widowed, and and but she kept the seats. So then every season the seats would kind of like, well, my uncle would get them for a couple of, and then you know, and and we had three boys in our family, but really only the two oldest at that time. My my younger brother wasn't born until fifty-eight, so he wouldn't have been eligible for going to hockey games until he was maybe. 63 or 64 maybe you know okay so but my dad would take us in those days when you watch tv the hockey games the Leafs would only be on probably saturday night and hockey night in canada only started after the juliet show so it came on at like nine o'clock and and i was only ever allowed to watch until the end of the second period and then i had to go to bed early you know only as i got later was i allowed to stay up and watch the whole game um and it was in black and white yeah so when you got to go down on the streetcar and go downtown Toronto and go to these games, 
oh my God, it was like, you know. Yeah. And the gardens, the hallways were decorated with these black and white huge photos of Bill Barilko's famous goal. And, oh, here's dude Conacher and here's Babe Pratt. And here's like all these old guys that were Harry Lumley and Turk yeah. Broda. And, and my dad knew who they were. Yeah. You know, would tell stories. Uh, but, I, you know, they were from before my, but of course I knew who the least were then. And they were becoming this legendary, so Horton and Bond and Brewer and because they were winning Stanley Cups, yeah. you know, so they were becoming a kind of a dynasty. Yeah. You know, Mahovlich and Red Kelly and Johnny Bauer in goal. And then they got Terry Sawchuk and the last cup they stole in 67 was because the goalies were great. Mm-hmm. The defense did everything they could to cheat. Yeah, you know, and they blocked shots, and and they scored just enough goals to win, by being outshot and outplayed, and they take more penalties than the other guys, but they managed to get past the Canadians. But it was the end of the era. Yeah, the expansion happened, and the Leafs were immediately just a shit team forever. Yeah, but anyways, the glory years, and so in the poem, I'm able to sort of skip. You know, from here, that's the background. And now, hey, here it is. It's 1970. I can't remember when it was, 88 or 78 or 79. Maybe. Yeah. 78, 79. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Triumph was supposed to play Massey Hall. Okay. And they wouldn't let us blow off the flash pots because Massey Hall's an old tinderbox. Mm. It isn't anymore, apparently. They've, they've no, redone it's it and it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But at the time, it was like, you can't use pyro in here. <laughs> and it was like, well, again, Gil would be like, we're not going anywhere without our flamethrower. Yeah. You know? So they said to Michael Cole, CPI, well, let's move it to the concert pool at Maple Leaf Gardens. He goes, are you crazy? That's like 2,000 seats to 7,800 seats. And that's not going to happen. You can't sell that many tickets. Mm. And Gil said, Yes, we can. Trust us. Our show is great enough. It's big enough. It's amazing enough. And so Gil had grown up on a street in Mississauga where Peter Goddard had been the local piano teacher. And he was, of course, now the music writer guy for the paper. Yeah. So Gil goes to Goddard and says, can we get like a banner front line of the entertainment section? Triumph's like too hot for Massey Hall. Show has to get moved to. And so- Peter goes, that's a great story. Yes, I can, I can do that. Yeah. So Triumph, got, we got moved to, and and Michael Cole said, you're nuts. I'm not doing it. And we and Gil and Mike had said, if we lose money, we'll write you a check for whatever you lose. Huh. We'll cover your loss. That's how confident we are. And Cole said, and it, this is in the documentary too, the Triumph yeah. documentary. There's literally footage of Michael Cole sitting there going, I couldn't believe how cocky they were. <laughs> he goes like, Bands would become successful because, you know, they they were good bands or they had good music. He goes, I didn't necessarily believe in their music, he said, but they were so cocky. I believed in them. (laughs) And so Mm. that was, and we sold enough tickets. Like, I think it sold out. And then we came back to the dressing room after and he'd put Maple Leafs jerseys. That's cool. So we walk into the dressing room and here's these Maple Leafs jerseys hanging, waiting for us. Wow. So that was like great, you know, like what a cool thing. Yeah, and the gardens was, you know, like this kind of shrine, you know, the place where the Beatles had played, you know. Yeah. And your name was on the marquee. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Amazing. Pretty great. Amazing. Okay, this next segment is going to be challenging to get through, my friend. Oh, dear. It is not so little brother and his insatiable appetite for life. Now, for me, by far the most emotional portion of the book. 
Uh, it involves the passing of your younger brother, Russell. And uh, I told you previously that that line that you have in there about ringing the finish bell at the hospital really broke my heart. This was pretty courageous of you to include in this book. And, and, and when you were thinking about what should be included, was there ever a point where you said maybe this is a little bit too private to share? Um, if I felt that, I would never start to write it. Mm. And yes, the answer to your question is yes, there's things that I won't write about. Mm -hmm. And that's because I'm going to respect things like my wife's privacy, mm -hmm. my children's privacy, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. There's some lines I won't cross. And there were some lines that I wouldn't cross until both my parents had passed away. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's another part of it. You've raised so many things that I want to address. Sure. Well, one of them is courage. Okay. Sometimes courage isn't the right word because there's an inevitability to what you must do. And once you realize this is downhill, there's, there's gravity to this. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with what I have to go with. There's a momentum here. Okay. So to call it courage, I think courage is when you're afraid and it's uphill. That's the courage part, to fight the uphill nature mm -hmm. of, of what you're afraid of. Once you get to the top and you realize, okay, it's downhill. Like once you found the thing, now it's not, it's, it's not so hard. And I, I don't say that to try and appear, uh, you know, like, wow, he's making us a small thing of his courage. And I go, mm. eh, I'm just telling you how it feels to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that courage, that bravado is really just either I'm angry and so, oh, God, you know, there's no stopping me, or I'm, I'm resigned. Mm -hmm. And this, this is, this is no, it's not, it's no longer a big deal. Okay. In my brother's case, I grieved badly for a long time, but, and I could never have delivered uh, a, a eulogy, you know, I, like emotionally, I couldn't have got three words out. I would have been just a, a blubbering, you know, mess. Yeah. But like, there's a song they played at my brother's funeral, State of Grace was on a Troubadours album that I, uh, I wrote. And I know my brother listened to it over and over and over mm. you know, on his headphones when he was lying sick. And um, they played it at his funeral. And I realized I'm never going to be able to play that song again. I'll never be able to sing that. I get that. I just want to finish up okay. with what I was saying about that poems. Those two poems, both of them. Uh, I felt like I, I had to write them. Mm-hmm. So that was like the downhill part. It was like, and I said earlier about lava. It's just once you start, I'm not going to stop until I'm finished. Yeah. You know, like it has to get done and then it's done. Then I go, I'm glad it's done. Yeah. And then I read it back and I go, you know, uh-oh. Who, who would it be going too far for? Yeah. So, you know, his daughter, I inscribe the front of the book to her and I say, hey, Haley, you know, like, this is how I see your dad. I know you're not in this poem. I'm sorry, but this is about me and your, your dad. Mm -hmm. And his wife, same thing, you know, like, but other than that, those are the only, you know, drawbacks or, or, or reservations I might have about that. It's like, uh, I have to sort of set the record straight. Okay. So that's that. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Want to continue on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Although uh, I should have had Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> um, time, time, time. Yeah. The next segment. So the future and the present, the use of weather as a metaphor, once again, cold representing fear of the future, and calm is represented by summertime images this time, trees and, and grass blowing in the breeze. Both of these concepts are presented, but at the end, one prevails. It's cold. The line is, I know full well the cold will come rushing in, insisting on its agenda. Where did that come from, um, the decision to end in that way? Because you die. <laughs> that, that really is it, right? Yeah. In the end, um, I mean, I'm trying to come up with better ways to deal with this in, in poem, poems I'm writing now. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I've evolved to this point of, of uh, we get back to stardust. We, 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 we become stardust again. Yeah. But I mean, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In the end, you're just going to become part of the ground, mm -hmm. like, you know. In one way or another, some of my brother's ashes mm -hmm. I put. You know, when you leave here today, you, there's three light posts on our front property. When we poured the concrete, I put some of my brother's ashes into the so that when the lights come on, they're on an automatic thing, and mm -hmm. you know, as soon as it gets dark, the lights come on. Yeah, and I always say, "Hey, Russ." Awesome. Yeah, I like that a lot. So we're all headed for either being in the ground in a box or mm -hmm. being cremated and being ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So how cold is it in outer space? We're stardust. Yeah. And that's literally what we are. Mostly uh, hydrogen and oxygen. And once those things have dissipated, yeah. what's left? These sort of trace kind of chemical things that are essentially dirt, mm -hmm. <laughs> ashes, you know. So... And there's not that much of it, really. Yeah. And we all return to it. That's why that poem ended that way. Part of writing poetry for me is to come to terms with that. You know, as I get older and I realize, you know, I'm 68. What have I got? Another 15 or 20? Maybe 25 if, you know, they figure out how to make it so my arthritis won't kill me. Because <laughs> I'm starting to have these issues, you know. That's sort of what the writing of poetry was helping me cope with, yeah. thinking ahead to the end of my life, because I'm now into the final chapter of it. Once you retire from the road and my, my kids are all grown and gone, mm -hmm. it's like, so now what? What's my life going to be about? Yeah. And so reinventing as a poet was one of the things that allowed me to say, well, I'm going to try to come to terms with my finite mortality i think that's fantastic yeah because what else is there to do i mean I, I, do i think about going to church yeah and i i do i think maybe i should explore that and then i go well that's not really being true to who i am intellectually that's just you know that would be me looking for an out but there's lines in the book where i talk about you know i worship the word i worship the arts I worship music. Those are the things that I worship. Yeah. And so that's the way I'm going to express myself. As I, uh, I'm on my way out here in my final chapter, mm -hmm. I'm going to turn to those things. 
See, the reason why I think that's fantastic is because, you know, you mentioned church. So as people come to the end of, of themselves, it's hard to recognize that you're a mortal person. You think about, you know, we talked earlier about reincarnation and the afterlife and all, and all that stuff. And it's a courageous thing to be able to, to face death and say, I've lived a good life. I'm ready for it. Okay. And I'm going to say what I said before about courage. Mm. It doesn't strike me that I'm being that courageous. It's inevitable. Mm. Like, so all I'm doing is trying to embrace reality, try to embrace the inevitable. And that seems like that's not courageous. That only makes sense. I, I, I understand what the point you're making is mm -hmm. most people don't want to do it. Right. They can't find the courage to do it because they're chicken shit. Right. And I go, yeah, but I never thought I was like most other people. <laughs> for good or for bad, you know, I, I never felt that way. I always felt that, you know, I was this unusual individual yeah. and that uh, I was going to be defining my own sense of what makes sense and what doesn't, what what requires courage and what doesn't. You know, I mean, you've, you've faced some adversity in your life. You've lost your wife, you mm -hmm. know. My wife has had colon surgery where she, she nearly died. Mm. Uh, both hips replaced. We've been through, my wife was in a car accident where she broke her neck and was in a striker frame for weeks. You know, wow. I would go to visit her in the hospital every day and she had spikes in her skull, the, you know, the, the with thorn. a halo yeah. yep, on a striker bed. So, and that happened like 1981. Oh my God, really? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So there's this stuff where if you've gone through these things, then maybe you realize it's not something that, that you have to be afraid of. Mm. It's something that you have to sort of learn how to figure out how to embrace, yeah. how to accept. And acceptance is, that's not a big thing. I don't think of that as a courageous thing. I think of acceptance as a very natural thing. If, if it's real and it's true and you accept it, I, this is one of the things when I see scientists mm. and they have a very calm, deliberate thing about life kind of. They don't get crazy excited because they don't get all emotional about the fact that they're going to die. They right. Go, yeah. So, yes. And your point is yeah. because they're going, yeah, well, that's just, I'm just accepting the rational normal course of things so mm -hmm. it's not a big deal because it happens to everybody so you know and then some people go no it's not happening to me i'm going yeah. to heaven uh, and you go well okay <laughs> yeah um is there anything that you wanted to say about reinvention that we haven't covered already uh, only that they it really makes an excellent stocking stuffer <laughs> <laughs> Is the time of year. Um, no, I uh, I realize that uh, poetry is a it, it's a it's a longer reach for some folks, you know, yeah. and it's maybe one that not a lot of people in this modern life, especially, mm. you know. But there is an audiobook version of it, which you can get, <laughs> and there's two songs on there, yes. "Born to Pay" and "And World of Song," because they were obviously not really poems they were turning themselves into lyrics on the page and i realized i'm gonna have to see this one all the way through and write the music and do all of that and there's little jazz guitar things that get you from uh, one section to the next 
And so there's about seven or eight of those chunks of things. Mm-hmm. And I was going to play one of those for you if you want it. I was just going to. Were you, 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 you going to leave me to that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me let me give that one a shot. Awesome. So that uh, I don't know how well I'll play this Stone Cold. Uh, okay. So I think we ended up calling this one. I mean, I'm not sure if they even have titles on the in the audio book or not. Uh, this was maybe uh, Ars Bossa. No, maybe it was just Ars Nova 2020. That that would be what it's entitled, but it's really just a 12-bar jazz blues, you know. Okay. Can it turn it up a bit? Okay, so this one, like... draws our conversation to a close my friend great thank you i, su- <laughs> I survived it's, another glad it's over i've survived another year <laughs> you have well done rick thank you so much oh, for you're welcome. You know, having me once again i really appreciate it. it means a lot and uh this has been a lot of fun as always cool man i look forward to 2022 <laughs> <laughs> what are we gonna do oh i don't know we'll have, figure something out you have to write another book yeah or you know my memoir won't be ready by then, but <laughs> but as you can see, like I've got a nice uh, start on um, putting the, my next book of poetry. Mm. Whether or not ECW will want to put out another one <laughs> is a whole see. other thing. You know, I think they're going to wait and see how the memoir sells. You know, yeah. But we were talking earlier about the memoir too uh, when we were having lunch, where you know this this Triumph documentaries come out. Mm-hmm. It's it's the triumph side of things, you know, it, it, which is to say the band, the brand, the legend, mm-hmm. you know, the storytelling. It's been shaped by, you know, those those folks. Yeah. And uh, it's not necessarily all of it, my perspective. But when I get to do my own memoir, I will be in charge of my own, you know, storyline and what I want to say. Now, you'd ask me earlier about writing poetry and are there things. Uh, you know that where I that I wouldn't say that I that I didn't go to, mm-hmm. and I was doing an interview with somebody I can't remember who about the poetry book, and they said, "Well, why are you going to even bother writing a memoir? They're like it's all in here: reinvention part, uh, self invention, and then reinvention part two, reinvention part three. They go four poems in there, and you've kind of covered it." And I went, "You're right, and it's very astute of you to have noticed that. That mm-hmm. that's pretty much kind of me saying." you know, these phases of my life, how did I reinvent myself through these stages? But uh, when you go back and you're looking at the past, there is this thing of being able to say, well, I don't need to f- say that. Mm. That That's not important to the storyline that I want to have, you know. A memoir is a different thing, obviously, than a book of poetry. Yeah, Writing things as poetry is a little bit different than writing things as prose. Mm-hmm. But I told you the story about that blue and white 
you know, the, the, the Leafs thing, Go Leafs Go, which it was originally prose, but then I kind of turned it into a poem, kind of, yeah. you know, and most people would read that and go, oh, it's a poem. And they would never think twice because it's in a book that says poems on the, t- on the cover. <laughs> they go, it's, it's a poem. But when you write prose, when you write memoir, mm-hmm. and this is a point I, I, I'd like to make in all the interviews that I do now, if I can remember to stuff it in at the end, writing poetry and looking at the world mm. as a poet has changed the way I see everything. Mm. It's changed the way I see my guitar playing, the way I see my songwriting, the way I, w- I would see the writing of the memoir, which, I mean, I've already been doing some of it, but I realize. It's better if I can lean towards being more poetic. Right. You know, like a memoir, and I've read plenty of them. You know, the Keith Richards one, which is this thick, yeah, and, you know, the Eric Clapton one, which is this thick. And and I got to say, they're, they're boring. I'm sure for f- fans, you know, and generally speaking, I'm sure they sell 100,000 times more than mine ever would. That's not the point. The point is when I read them, I go, yeah, I, you know, Keith, I don't really care who your great uncle was on your mother's side mm-hmm. and that he, you know, drove a beef truck, you know. Yeah. And you're taking three pages to kind of go through that kind of stuff, you know. Like, I don't think it matters to the story of Keith Richards. Right. It's just that you're trying to cover every base. I honestly, after writing poetry, I realized, no, that's not the point. Covering every base is not the point, mm-hmm. you know. Covering the the little tiny details that really matter, that matters. That's important. Mm-hmm. But not all this lettuce, not all this other stuff that, you know. No, so. that's a that's a great point because I, as a as a reader of those same books, I'll skip forward, you know, and I'm sure the listeners would do that too. A lot of people do. It, it, that's just not what you're there for. The the thing for me is the fact that I found my way to it later in life. Mm-hmm. And that I'd gone through all of these other stages of sort of writing songs just because I'm a kid that writes songs. Yep. And then writing songs because I'm trying to get girls in high school to notice me, you yeah. know. And then writing songs because now, you know, I need stuff for the rock band to play in bars. Mm-hmm. And now writing songs because, oh my God, I'm in another rock band and we're going to be making records. And so now we got to try and get those records on the radio. And so now I'm writing songs because I'm trying to get them on the album so that they can go on the radio. And so that channeling, the, 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 the path yeah. that the song is having to find its way through, you know, these are commercial constraints that are being placed upon the, the writing. So, but then I, I go through and I leave that band and I go out on my own and now I'm writing songs. I go, well, I've already been a rock star. I want, maybe I can write songs that are more about just trying to write songs that become great records. Period. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe I can write songs that are just about being a great songwriter. Period. At, yeah. As opposed to whether or not it's even going to get made into a record. Who cares? Like, just ma- write a great song. And so I come all sort of full circle. And then you become a poet. And then you go, okay, what have I learned about process? What have I learned about end goal, uh, about ambition, now that I'm facing an empty page? And the little sign on my desk is saying poet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, I'm a poet now. Am I? Okay. So what does that mean? You know, what, what, what am I writing? What truth am I going for here? Yeah. You know, it, it's a nice thing to have found yeah. in my seventh decade of life that you can go, no, just 
Like I, I look forward to getting up in the morning, having some breakfast and then sitting down and getting out my pen and just writing. Yeah. I love the idea of I get an idea and I'm just going to bed and I get out the notebook and I start writing something, you know, in my pajamas lying in bed thinking this, this might be a good idea. Yeah. This, this, this might be, this might turn into something. Yeah. I, with no expectation of whether or not I'm going to sell them or whether or not they're going to, you know, be to be able to do it. And then realize, this is who I was always. I was always this creative person mm-hmm. that just wanted to have a place to sit down and write. I, you know, my wife will say, oh, you know, let's go on a trip to, she climbed Machu Picchu with my son. Uh-huh. You know, they went to Italy. She went with the girls. And they they flew in an air balloon over Tuscany or you know whatever like Tuscany yeah, yeah. you know Florence they drove through Florence you know in a rental car and for her it's a huge thrill and I go you know honey I've done a lot of traveling in my life seen a lot of hotels been in a lot of airplanes and airports and stuff you know what actually just really really turns my crank to sit down in a quiet room with a pencil and a piece of paper and the phone's not ringing and. Yeah. It's nice to have a guitar handy. I don't mind that, <laughs> but you know that I can be happy. Yeah. You know that I'm I'm a creative person, and I just need the opportunity to be that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that platform is a luxury in that way, right? It just gives you such a an opportunity, and just you think about the grandness of the whole thing. It, it gives you a platform to look back on your life and really kind of, like I said at the beginning, proportion. It puts your life in in proportion for you, but also for your fans. Yes. Right? Yeah, there's that for sure. Yeah. I, I'm going to say this too, just because you, you know, invited me to say something <laughs> before I finished, <laughs> if I really want to say it. You know, I've, I've, I've said some uh, and written some things about, you know, against religion and against uh, that orthodox kind of dogmatic spirituality. But I do feel like uh, I am a spiritual kind of person because of that creativity that I possess. Mm -hmm. And often the idea of uh, religion, the idea of a God, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a shortcut. Yeah. And I don't mind the shortcut sometimes. Like, and I would often say when I was teaching songwriting to students, look, you need to be humble when you're writing because you literally are staring into the face of God. Yeah. Now, I was just using that as a poetic kind of expression because God to me is, if you if somebody says, well, how would you define God? And I would say, well, I if you tell me God is love, I'll buy that. If you said to me, God is everything that we don't know, mm. that humans don't know or don't understand, let's call that God. I would go, okay, I'm good with that. Because those are humble things. Yes. And there's a morality that exists in religion, mm-hmm. all of them, where, where there's a humility there. At the very bottom of Christianity, at the very bottom of uh, the Muslim faith, Jewish faith, Buddhism, mm-hmm. Buddhism in particular has a really humble kind of approach to the way you're going to have to live this life, the moral way you're going to have to live this life. And I go, okay, I'm down with that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm completely good with that. If you start making rules, priests have got to wear this color hat, you know, or, you know, I'm sorry, you can't have fish on Friday. Well, we got to get down <laughs> on the rug and pray five times a day. Like, as you start making up these rules, yeah. 
like, I'm going to go, I'm sorry. Now you've lost me. I didn't mind being humble in the face of everything I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't mind that at all. That's why I take out a pencil and a piece of paper yeah. because I'm going to try and be creative in the face of that. So anyhow, there there's my sermon. Now, now you can go back and edit a whole bunch of shit out of that. <laughs> this is going to be quite the editing exercise. <laughs> Well, that's what we're going to end with then. Okay, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. All right, Rick. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Rick Emmett. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>